Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody. Um, if you can, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We've been working our way through uh, this book. Uh, we know that Scripture testifies to Christ's session, which is His place at the right hand of the Father on high, that as He ascended after uh, spending time with the disciples uh, after His resurrection, He then ascended into heaven taking uh, human flesh where it had never been. That, that is the presence of God. And so in taking it there, uh, we recognize that he was afforded uh, earthly privilege. He was afforded authority on heaven and on earth. He says so uh, in what we call the Great Commission. What we've been looking at in the book of Ephesians, or the letter to the Ephesians, is this idea of the exalted Christ, his session, and this morning as we continue to look at chapters 4 and 5, we're going to see that there is an earthly reality to this heavenly session, because remember, he's been given authority on heaven and earth. Well, as Paul's been walking us through this first half of his letter, we see that uh, within the first half, Paul establishes many doctrinal truths, leading us along so that we may rejoice with him by the end of chapter 3 in, in claiming to God or ascribing to God the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Then he turns his attention in, in verse 4 from what we've called uh, doctrine to devotion, from indicative to imperative. And in doing so, he begins with the, with the first imperative, which is to maintain a spirit-wrought unity. That the church's spiritual unity is supposed to be visible. And he emphasizes in the first six verses or so, this idea of spiritual unity. Eventually, as we will make our way past verse 6, we'll see that he turns from spiritual unity to spiritual diversity. And within the body, though we are all one, he affords each of us different gifts of the Spirit in order to bless the body and build the church. But for, this, for our time this morning, we remain in his emphasis on unity. So follow along as I read for us Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you all... Just, as also you are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. 
The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. So, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks this morning that we have your word to light upon our paths, to provide a lamp unto our feet. We ask you, Lord, by your Spirit, to illuminate it to us, that we, with all the saints, may ascribe to you glory in heaven and on earth. We ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've ever met a person like this, but maybe it's a person in life who you've admired. You've seen them uh, from a distance, or you've, you're beginning to get to know them. You see these uh, outward uh, things in their lives, and you think, then you and you admire them. And as you get to know them and better find out about them, or better come to know them, you find out that there wasn't much behind their admirable living. You find out that their living is 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 more of a law or legalist spirit or legalism altogether. You find that that there's not much behind there. That that there wasn't sound doctrine supporting their sound living. Well, there's no place in Scripture for a Christian to live soundly and think wrongly. This passage is an example of it. Just as we are moving forward with the practical section of Ephesians, Paul directs our attention back to the doctrine that should support his command to walk in a manner worthy. He's imploring the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which they have been called. And before moving forward in this, he goes backwards. He actually goes all the way back to the beginning of his letter, whereas we took time at the beginning showing that he was, in the beginning of his letter, he was showing the inseparable operations of the Trinity in salvation. This doctrine that undergirds to us how uh, this idea that um, we worship and serve one true and living God. And so what Paul does here is he says, walk in a manner worthy, but as you walk in a manner worthy, walk with this supporting doctrine. Last week, we recognized that as we walk in a manner worthy, we are to maintain the unity that is given to us in the Spirit of God, that is mediated to us through the Son, that is blessed to us by the Father. And we saw that its unity has anatomy and physiology and being. We saw these things related to this idea of uh, humility, gentleness, and peace. That we're to show tolerance for one another in love and being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, today we're going to see Paul's explanation for the foundation of this unity. Where, what undergirds this unity? If we are to live in such a way, we are also to think in such a way as we live. And so we're going to see this unity as a creed. We're going to see this unity by its content, and we're going to see this unity in how it connects to our lives. Well, as a creed, uh, it may come as no surprise to you that um, this section of Paul's uh, letter to the Ephesians has been recognized probably as an early Christian creed. 
creed serving uh, this congregation and maybe other congregation is a short saying that allows for doctrinal truth to become memorized easily, to be confessed corporately, and it will serve uh, the church for a number of reasons. But it's a, it's a way in which, as we can draw through inference and even explicit writings of Paul, that it was probably a way whereby the church combated the enemies that were attacking the church. They were against one united people of God. That there were some that, have, that were claiming Christ and yet still saying that, that, that you had to take upon the law of Moses and that there would create this separation between Jew and Gentile in doing so. That there would be a separation between the circumcision or the circumcised and the uncircumcised physically. And so I think uh, we can uh, conclude with many commentators that this creed arose out of such heresy as even our uh, church, uh, historical church creeds have done in the past. And so we see the use of this creed in three ways. We see that it would protect from heresy. That is, the church together confessed that there is one body and one spirit. That there's one hope of our calling. That there's one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We would see that it would protect that church or protect the church from heresy that would seek to divide men according to race, according to ethnicity, according to social strata. So we would also see that it, it serves to correct the church. That our sight by faith, it would, it would correct our sight by faith, drawing us off what we see in, in the physical form to see with the eyes of faith. Because here in this creed, we are reminded, and they were reminded then, to not walk by sight, but by faith. That it would cause them to confess their unity together in these different categories, in these different ways. And in doing so, they would be training and correcting their minds from any thought that would be contrary to it. The creeds also serve the church, and this creed would certainly have done so. It would also protect. So it would have, it would have uh, protected from heresy. It would corrected their sight. It would project. Excuse me. It would project their minds to grab or to lay hold into the one hope of their calling. It projects because this is a shared hope that the church is working eschatologically to a shared end. That we're, that we're not all working against each other. That these different congregations with their different circumstances and certainly different providences were still working to, in and through a shared hope. And as we will see that this hope is not just uh, something that we cast out into the future and leave it there, but it is something that returns to us in a way and has practicality to our everyday lives until our faith shall be sight. This projected and shared hope can, we can see in Ephesians 3. In Ephesians 3, verse 18, that, that they would be able to comprehend with all the saints, there's the shared hope, the sharedness of it, with all 
the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. That they would have been filled up to all the fullness of God. This shared hope and this shared calling, would have, would, this creed would have projected their minds towards that. It would have drawn a connection to them now and, then, and there in the future when every tribe, tongue, and nation stand before God and worship Him. Well, as we will analyze or look at this creed further, what I want to draw our attention to this morning as it relates to creeds is to recognize how the church has responded to heresy down through the ages. It has done so through creedal formation. The first creed, the Nicene Creed in 325, was then further edited in Constantinople in 381. And it was done, it was, it, it was formed out of a growing heresy as the nature of the person of the Son. And in the latter uh, creed, or the, in the latter Constantinople Creed, the Holy Spirit's deity, how it serves the church today as a unifying doc, document of orthodoxy. That it protects, that it corrects, and that it projects. And we'll see as we read it, we'll see that there's a flow to this creed as we, will, as we can look back at Ephesians 4 and see the same. But the flow to this creed, as it's certainly modeled from Scripture, is it flows from the one God to eventually the one church, the love uh, expressed in that church. It reads, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us, who for us men are salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried and on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father and he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified who spoke by the prophets. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. We see that it begins in the one God. It, it ends and flows to this one church, to this one shared hope of end. Uh, in end. Uh, Michael Allen uh, comments on this. He says, professing that Christ has redeemed a church that is one, even as Father and Son are one, demands faith in the face of empirical challenge. But that is a wager that Christians are willing to take up. The understanding here is that we may look at the church today and we may say, this isn't, we're not one church. There's 
a myriad of denominations. There are different confessions of faith. There are different beliefs on such doctrines as, as baptism, such, such doctrines as, as the regulative principle of worship, such other doctrines that we find that there is, we may look at this quote-unquote empirical evidence and see that there's a challenge to this idea that the church is one. But because of what Scripture says about the church, we, we should be willing to take up this wager. The Nicene Creed reminds us of this wager every time we confess it, belief. It says, of one church, in its third article, the church's oneness is not a delayed reality, like the way we look to the resurrection of the dead and life everlasting, but a present gift that we trust to be true. So as we look at our passage this morning, and we see it as a creed of the early church, of, of the earliest creeds, that we would see it in such a way that it is protecting the church, that it is correct the church and is projecting the church to a greater end. And so we can do so by looking at its content. In 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 12, we see a similar formulation that Paul uses for that church. And so we begin to see that uh, this creed existed in, in a way, and Paul uses it and applies it to these believers. He says, For even as the body is one, and yet as many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also in Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Well, here we see a similar construction of one. Just like in 1 Corinthians 12, the apostle plays on the term one to stress the essential unity of the church. In these three verses, the term occurs seven times. We take note of the seven times. But we further see that three times in the first triad of nouns, three times in the second triad, and finally once in the reference to God in 4.6, who is a summary of all the unities in himself. It should be noticed that each of these three groups of one is grouped around a reference to each of the three persons of the Trinity. So Paul, as he is establishing the foundation for their unity, he does so in the triune God. And he first explains this God as one. He emphasizes the oneness of God. You know, uh, it's often that when we hear Trinity, our minds naturally think three. I think it's probably because of the, the beginning of the word that it begins in this idea of tri. And we may think that the idea behind the use of the term Trinity is to communicate the threeness of God. Yet it was recognized by uh, an older theologian, a man named Amadeus Polanus, that this word Trinity was not meant to convey threeness, but yet it was to convey oneness. It was to convey the oneness of God. The, the one God existing in three persons. And so here Paul does so in scriptural language. 
language, infallibly by uh, superintending of the Spirit. He expresses the oneness of God, and yet there is the three persons for us to look at. So we see the beauty and the wonder of God revealing His nature to us. Revealing the, the mystery, uh, the incomprehensible mystery of who He is. This one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, each of the three persons fully possessing the divine being, the divine essence. Uh, there is a saying that uh, comes out of the creedal forms that, that we would say that uh, it is neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. So there is no confusion of persons in, in this, and yet we still don't divide the being, the essence of God. It truly is a mystery, one that cannot be fully unfolded to us uh, this morning to maybe many of our questions regarding the doctrine of the Trinity this morning. And truly there's, uh, there is, will be further mystery in it as we are finite and created beings and He is the infinite and eternal God. Excuse me. Well, as we look at this idea of uh, the content of this creed and we're recognizing that there's a reference uh, to each of the three persons of the Trinity, let us begin where it begins, that there is one body, that all who are joined by the Spirit through faith to Christ belong to His body and are kin to everyone else so joined to Christ. This one body is held together by one spirit. This one body and one spirit. There is only one spirit. It is His indwelling, binding presence that gives the church its essential oneness. So we see that though the one body, we would say, belongs to the head, Christ, is held together by this one spirit. And it leads here, it says, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. Every Christian is traveling in the same direction, whether we are aware of it or not. Our ultimate destination is the consummation of our spirit-wrought union with Christ to be forever with the Lord. Again, we have one body held together by one spirit, so there is one spirit. This hope we will be carried along by this hope, or by the Spirit in this hope, to the consummation of all things. And then in verse 5, he says, One Lord, everyone who owns Jesus as Lord, who bows before the grace and sovereignty of His saving Lordship, not only has an obligation to acknowledge as family all such believers, but also to recognize openly that they are family. That in regards to unity, we all confess one Lord. We do not confess that somebody has their Jesus and we have our Jesus, but we are to know the Lord as He is revealed, and we are to confess Him as such together. We are to see our union in this one Lord, this one mediator. 
And this one mediator provides to us one faith, a, an object, provides to us an object of our one faith. Not all Christians are confessional Baptists. This is simply a fact. The one faith Paul is highlighting here is the saving faith that has the Lord Jesus Christ as its foundation, epicenter, and its pinnacle. We recognize that the one faith we share with all brothers and sisters in Christ finds its object in Christ. It is supported and fed and sustained, as we will see later on, through the one God. So we must seek to understand God in, in how He is revealed to us accurately and confess Him truly. We must understand the Lord and His work. We must confess the Spirit as fully God, worthy of all honor and worship. We must be orthodox in our thinking. And in, and in that way, we have and share one faith with all those who call upon Christ. This one faith has also been given to us through means. Some, one of the means that it has been given to us is through sacrament. So we share one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Baptism is into the one name of the Holy Trinity, marking out as those on whom God has placed His name. Our baptism is intended to mark us out publicly as belonging to God and His church. It does not and cannot affect that belonging, belonging but it is the divinely commanded sign to publicize that we are not our own. As our confession says, or and, and our, uh, the catechism connected to that, is that it's not according to the water or the bread and the wine. It's not according to the minister who administers these means or these sacraments. But it is according to the Spirit at work in the believer who approaches them by faith that they are commended to the believer. And so they are commended to all who approach them by faith the same way. So that we are baptized into one baptism. Connected to one Lord and one faith. This all culminates. These two triads now culminate into a final triad. Into, into a singular and, and yet tri lasting one. One God and Father. Here again we recognize another triad. And so we may also recognize the Trinity again. We may recognize the Trinity in this passage again. Paul writes of God the Father who is above all and through all and in all. We see that there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. All things are from God who owes His existence to none. All things are through Him as though to say through the mediator. We have one God overall and one God through all 
and one God in all. And yet we're not talking about three gods. We're talking about one God. The God who is over all is the Father in this formulation. We would not exclude the, um, the exaltation of Christ and neither would we exclude the full deity of the Spirit. But here in this formulation, we recognize that the Father is recognized as sovereign God. As, as, as the God over all. And the same God is also through all. Through the mediator. And then all things are in him. As though to say in the one who contains them. That is, reconciles them in one spirit. You see, Paul is working here through this creedal formation to bring to mind, to bear with the Ephesians, the undergirding of their unity. So that as the world, the flesh, and the devil seek to come in and undermine it, to create suspicion between brothers and sisters, to create inordinate division amongst each other, we may all turn again to the creedal formation and say, no, may it never be, for there is one Lord, for there is one body and one spirit, just as there is one hope of our calling, there is one Lord, one faith and one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We recognize that Paul here is explaining to the Ephesians their unity. He's trying to help them as anticipating that as this unity will in their physical or in their temporal interactions seem to fade. It will seem to dissipate as time goes on. And yet that which is wrought by God can never pass away. And so here he depicts this idea that he is trying to make sense to them, this unity that is wrought in the triune God. It is being sustained by the same presence of this triune God. This text seems to suggest, as one commentator says, that the presence of the unifying realities in these other areas is wholly owing to His being, to God's being and God's actions. Well, if this is to undergird our unity, if this is to undergird our idea of maintaining or preserving the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, to approaching one another in love, to seeing that we treat each other with all humility, gentleness, and patience as we walk in a manner worthy of our calling with which we have been called, we may draw some connecting points. There are three connecting points I think we can draw from this, at least three. One is going to be corporately, another centrifugally, and another through charity. First, corporately. We must see that though this section addresses the, uh, the corporate body of the church, where all who call upon the name of Christ by faith, in true faith, are incorporated into the body of, God, or of, of Christ. They are incorporated into this one body, that they, we are all together one with them. But we must not lose the idea that the context of this section falls in the lap of a local church. 
The idea is, is that your unity to the body of Christ is not a solo thing. It's not you and your Bible and God under a tree and there you are, you're united with the church together because there you are in your true faith. No, the idea here is that this creed was given to a local church. So it was to have a local church context. The idea is, is that this is not a solo thing. This is a corporate thing. Though we are united individually, the purpose of us being united individually is to come together corporately. Paul would not encourage a Christian to be a solo member of a one-person or one-member church. This is the implication of the context of being within a local church. So this is why here at Covenant Baptist Church, we encourage church membership. We, we see it as a requirement for participation in the things of the church. Because we see that Christ has come to establish a church and that there, we are to be numbered with other brothers and sisters. And so as we are numbered with other brothers and sisters, we then take the joy in counting the greater number of the greater body of Christ. Centrifugally, I've always heard this term, and I had to check it. I've always heard it as centrifugally. That's not how it's spelled. This is the Mandela effect on me. It's centrifugally. Because in the fire service, we have evidently not centrifugal pumps, but centrifugal pumps. These, this idea, if would, you'd be able to understand it if you've ever been to an old playground or you're an older person and you remember the playgrounds of, of your youth where there were merry-go-rounds. Where you would get on it, you'd probably put your, put your buddies in the center and you'd get the biggest guy on the playground to start running around it. And he would get it going. And you'd see if you could hold on to the center of that merry-go-round and as it's going around, where kids are whipping out every direction. I don't even know why they ever got rid of those things. It, it built up a lot of strength. A lot of upper body strength and a lot of strength of mind. But that's centrifuge force. That's the idea that within the center, that spinning center, it works out and kicks out to have effect outside of it. The knowledge and study of God in Trinity, as the Spirit through Paul has demonstrated this morning in our passage, is the center of this merry-go-round. It's the center force of our unity. And as we come to know more of our triune God and how He has revealed Himself to us, it should generate a force of energy that works outward from us toward love of God and love of neighbor, whereby we express our confessed unity through showing one another the love which we have been loved by. As Paul sees to undergird their unity, he does so through this creedal formation. And this creedal formation is, is to reveal to us more of who God is in Trinity. And in doing so, we draw this conclusion that there must be something important. There must be something profitable to understanding God in himself. God in his essence. God in his revelation. 
that it is an actually a generating force for us to do so. Sometimes we think of it as a black hole. Uh, you get sucked into it and then you're just lost forever talking about usias and, and we're talking about consubstantialness and we're, we're talking about all these things and ways in which we can talk about God. When we see it more of a black hole, we should see it more as this centrifugal energy, this, this generating force whereby it is through understanding that that we then there work out and express our confessed unity through showing one another the love which we have been loved by. Craig Carter recently wrote that the purpose of theology is to speak truthfully about God, to purify our ideas of God so that we can enjoy Him. It is to enable the rational, the rational worship of God, which is polluted by idols. In other words, theology has no pragmatic purpose in the way moderns think of it. A good theologian is not one who tries to imagine how theological statements might have some practical usefulness for human projects, but rather one who seeks to contemplate and to bring others to contemplate the beauty of God's being for its own sake. And to which I might add that within this contemplation we see a way toward usefulness. That we wouldn't say then the, the doctrine of the Trinity is helpful to understand because if you understand the Trinity, then you might understand greater the way to do civil government. Or contemplating the Trinity and contemplating God would help you better understand society. No, contemplating God is, is an end and a blessing of itself for, for what are we to know and grow in greater knowledge of in the age to come, but God himself. But in contemplating God, we would see a way toward charity, for we would come to an understanding of our creatureliness. That we'd come to a greater understanding of our need for a mediator, and then on and on as we see the great riches of Christ and His mercy, or the mercy of God in Christ. And this charity that we can draw from this creedal form, it was an otherwise, un, it was an otherwise undistinguished German Lutheran theologian of the early 17th century, Rupertus Maldinius, who is said to have coined the phrase, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. The idea of charity or love is the outworking of recognized unity. We don't show uh, this charity at the end of that statement um, ambiguously. We show the charity to those who we share essential unity with. This idea is further understood in uh, the theologian Ian Hamilton. The gospel of God's grace in Christ not only changes our status before God, but also transforms our state. We become new creations in Christ, and the life of the new creation is shaped and styled by loving unity, the essential mark of the Holy Trinity. We see this in the use of one in relation to love and unity. Because of our spirit-wrought unity and our spirit-wrought strength and our spirit-wrought desire, we are to love one another as Christ loves us. We are to love one another as Christ loves us and has loved us first. 
For there will be many moments of strife and awkwardness and feelings of inadequacy as we interact with one another or other believers. But we are to love all the same. Why? Because we share an essential unity. We are to love as if you have been made whole by Christ. You are to love as, as, as if we are one body with that person. As we have been made whole by Christ, we are to love as if we have been united to Christ and to one another. We see that as we recognize the creedal formation here that we find in Ephesians 4 through 6, though it uh, gives us attention to further explanation of doctrine, that he goes back to essentially the beginning of his letter and further explaining the operations of this one God, we find great comfort to know that as we interact with one another that if we are united in this one body and one spirit, that if we all call upon this one hope or have been called by this one hope, if we all look and rely on this one Lord in one faith, that we've all entered into this one baptism, that we all serve one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, then hopefully as you are doing that, there is some stepladder that you are getting on that whatever wall you've created between you and your brother or sister begins to either crumble before you or be is able to be surmounted and looked over and looked past and looked beyond and make way to love one another and be united to one another. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we give you great praise this morning. For we recognize that you have made us one. Lord, we ask that as we live out this one faith and one baptism, this one, one hope that you have given us, that you have called us to, you would work in us love for you and love for our neighbor that we may, with all the saints, give all glory, honor, and praise to you. We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.